You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, um, welcome to Intelligent Talk. IntelligentTalk.com is our website. We're very pleased to have Rick Gillespie on today. Uh, Rick is um, an expert on a subject that's of interest to mine, which is the fate of Amelia Earhart. He's the head of TIGHAR, T-I-G-H-A-R, which stands for the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. And Mr. Gillespie, thanks for coming on the program today. It's my pleasure. And incidentally, we pronounce that tiger, just like the animal. Oh, I'm sorry, tiger. Yes, okay, tiger. I stand corrected. Um, so... Obviously, I'm familiar with your story. I read your book, Finding Amelia. It fascinates me. But just to go back a little bit, you are a pilot, and you were an accident investigator. Is that right? That's right. And you work for an insurance company, and you weren't particularly happy in that? Is that basically your background? <laughs> well, I was happy at first. It was a great flying job. Uh, I got to travel around and uh, visit. Uh, I was doing mostly general aviation, you know, light light aircraft, and uh visiting small airport operations and uh, handling their insurance operations, uh, risk management, and acting as an insurance adjuster, investigating accidents, settling claims. And that was the part of it that I enjoyed the most. You know, I I wasn't thrilled with being an insurance man, but uh, I loved aviation, I loved the flying, and I've always had a passion for aviation safety. Uh, that stems from an unfortunate incident when I was younger. I watched a few friends die in a mid-air collision, and it really it was a bit traumatic. And I was committed to uh, trying to keep that sort of thing from happening. So, uh, but I did reach a point with the insurance industry where, because of Changes in the industry, rate increases, and product liability uh, legislation and uh, litigation, I saw the insurance industry killing the general aviation industry. Okay. And I felt like a bad guy. And uh, I, I decided not to do that anymore. Now, about, sorry. And about the same time that was happening... Uh, in my personal life, things were kind of going to hell. I was uh, in the middle of a divorce and the financial trouble that comes with that often. And so I reached a point where um, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. And I said, well, I did all the stuff I'm supposed to do and hasn't turned out all that great. I love the accident investigation work, but I, I'm not happy with the insurance work. So um, now I'm going to do what I want to do. My college degree is in history. It's just a bachelor's degree, but it's in history. And I've been committed to aviation and interested in aviation history. And maybe it would be possible to start a nonprofit foundation 
that approached aviation historical investigation as a real science and discipline rather than grave robbing and treasure hunting. And um, to my very good fortune, the, the young woman who had the poor judgment to uh, come along with me, and now my wife, uh, we, we started an organization uh, we called the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, acronym to TIGER, and um, the concept was that it would be an open source historical foundation. We would recruit volunteer members who, assisted, who would assist in the investigations and, if appropriate, recoveries, expeditions, a very active sort of organization. And the concept was that there would be enough of these members to cover the basic operating costs, and then we'd do special fundraising for special projects. It's a great concept. Uh, it was never viable. <laughs> I don't recommend it as a way of making a living. But we've managed to keep it alive and keep it going and keep it growing for 33 years now. Okay. So, uh, well, Mr. Uh, Gillespie, let me get into some of the, Obviously, your most famous investigation is the Amelia Earhart, and you looked at finding Glenn Miller's plane, the famous band leader who disappeared in World War II and others. But as I said, your most famous investigation is the Amelia Earhart. Just for people who don't remember, she was flying around the world, 1937. The last leg of the journey was, um, it was early July, 1937. She was flying from New Guinea to try to reach um, Howland Island. There was a Coast Guard cutter uh, there to assist her, and with the radio trafficking, I think it was something like uh, 2,500 miles, uh, 2,500 miles in 19 hours. Obviously, you go into great detail about this in your book, but I'd just like to explain, um, if you could, Amelia Earhart of that flight was with Fred Newton, who had been a former Pan Am navigator. Could you just briefly explain to me how they were planning to do the navigation of that trip and the navigation status at that time, how they did navigate? Sure. They... uh the leg of the trip from Lane, New Guinea to Howland Island was, of course, the most difficult leg, and Earhart acknowledged this. Uh, 2,500 miles and change, uh, almost entirely over ocean, much of it at night. So the navigational technique they plan to use is the same navigational technique that Noonan helped pioneer for Pan Am. They had, Pan Am had been flying scheduled passenger service across the Northern Pacific for nearly a year. And the way they did that was for, for example, a Pan Am clipper would take off from Alameda, California, and follow a radio bearing provided by a radio direction finding station on the coast for as long as they could, be two or three hundred miles out. After that, Noonan would take over, and using celestial navigation, sightings of the sun and stars, and dead reckoning to keep the airplane more or less on course until they were close enough to the next radio direction finding station. In this case, it would be at Makapu Point on Oahu in Hawaii, where the, the radio operator aboard the, the Pan Am Clipper would send signals, the station on the ground would take a radio bearing and say, okay, you need to fly heading so-and-so to get to where we are, and they would fine-tune their approach into Hawaii that way. 
Then they would take off from Hawaii and fly outbound on a heading, uh, on a radio bearing until they out of, out of range. And then when they were within range of the next station at Midway Island, they would pick up again with a radio bearing. And that's the way they hopscotched their way across the Northern Pacific. It was a great system. It worked well, but it did rely on ground-based uh, radio direction finding stations and a radio operator aboard the aircraft. Noonan didn't do radio. Uh, his job was celestial navigation and dead reckoning. The Clippers had a dedicated radio operator, and that turned out to be the Achilles heel in the Earhart operation. Okay. Now, when when um, Charles Lindbergh did his trip 10 years before to um, to Europe, was he? Did he didn't have radio frequencies? I guess he was just doing dead reckoning. I assume, but obviously he had a lot bigger target, which was an entire Europe rather than just a small island in the Pacific. Is that right? That's right. The, the, the term "lucky Lindy" was, was accurate. He just took off, picked the compass heading, adjusted it, and just and that's the same way Earhart flew the Atlantic uh, five years later in 1932. It's a gutsy way to do it, but if you have a big target like the European continent you know, it, it works she was the first woman to fly the atlantic right if i recall that, that's right she, she was the first woman to fly the atlantic as a passenger and she was the first person to fly the atlantic and did it solo after Lindbergh. okay so, uh, that, uh, she, although she didn't do what Lindbergh did Lindbergh flew from new york to paris 3700 miles Earhart flew from Newfoundland, got lost and ended up in ireland 1700 miles so very different, but she did it on the fifth anniversary of his flight, which was very clever. And so she she was the first person to cross the Atlantic after Lindbergh. Okay, so Mr. Glenn, I want to get into very soon the, the radio transmissions that um, Amelia did, which I think is your strongest evidence that she survived that. But before I do, I just want to ask her, some of her last radio transmissions were flying along the line. But before I even ask you about that, there was some um, some noise that Fred Newton was sort of a drunk do you think that contributed at all to that the problems they had with that flight? Was there any evidence that that caused any problems that he was drinking? Do you know? Of? No, I, I've I've never seen any indication that Noonan's drinking was a, a factor in the um, it, in the disappearance. Noonan was not the super accurate top of the line navigator that he's often made out to be. He didn't have a drinking problem for most of his career. He did apparently develop a drinking problem during his last days at Pan Am. That's why he quit the company. But he was apparently on the wagon and uh, recovering by the time he was working with Earhart. Okay. So, Mr. Gillespie, your theory is that they missed the island. The, 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 the Atasca, the Coast Guard cutter, hears some transmissions from her. One of them is flying along the line, which is, I believe, 157 degrees. Is, is that right? Well, it's, it's what's known as a line of position. And if, if you understand that Noonan, during the night, has not been able to keep the plane on course using sightings of the stars because they've had an overcast. Okay. Uh, he, he can't see the stars. So the first chance he gets to check their progress is when the sun comes up. And he can take a bearing, he, he, he can take a sighting of the sun. And because... Dawn moves across the face of the earth at a predictable uh, direction and time. If he sights the sun soon after it's up and notes the time very precisely with his chronometer, he can draw a line on his map that is 90 degrees 
to the rising sun. On that day, the sun rose at 67 degrees. So he can put a line on his map that goes 90 degrees to that, 337 degrees one way, 157 degrees the other way. He, and he'll know that he's someplace on that line. He won't know if he's up north, down south, or right on course. But he can take that line, knowing how fast he's going, he can advance that line theoretically until it falls through his destination, Howland Island, and say, okay, in whatever it is, an hour and 12 minutes, uh, we should be on that line that Howland Island is on. If we're right on course, we'll look out the window and there the island will be. But if we don't see the island, at least we'll know it's off to the left or off to the right. And then it's just a matter of running up and down the line until we find it. Okay, so just I, I, just because I just for time wise, I'm just going to sort of skip to uh, the point. They, your your theory is that they basically they miss the island, but they're able to find what is what is what was then called Gardner Island. They basically land on a reef um, near the island, and I think the strongest evidence that you have for that is the amazing amount of radio signals that was transmitted, which obviously couldn't have been transmitted if the plane had crashed. It was either floating in the water or or just crashed and sunk. I mean, you have a, a woman in Florida, Betty Clink, who picked up transmissions. You had um, uh, the Coast Guard cutter. Uh, you had, uh, sorry, Pan Am Airlines radio signals. You had a British warship. I mean, could you just describe some of the radio signals that were picked up after she was supposedly lost, which I think is the strongest evidence that she survived that crash? Well, I agree with you. It is the strongest evidence. And we have uh, at least 57 receptions of radio distress calls that were suspected of being from Earhart at the time that can only have been from Earhart. Let's talk about the the, the, the Pan American signals. Now, but Betty Clank, the, the girl in Florida, is great because she transcribed what she actually heard Earhart saying, and that's very dramatic and very credible. But the ones that really nail it are the Pan American signals, these same direction-finding stations we were just talking about in Hawaii and Midway and Wake Island are taking bearings on these calls, and the, and the bearings are crossing at Gardner Island. And there's no way they can be sent from anybody but Earhart. There are no transmitters in that area. They've got to be coming from Earhart. Okay. And what is a harmonic broadcast? Because that explains why these people in Florida, and I think there was a child in Wyoming or something, who also how it was able to bounce off. Can you explain what a harmonic broadcast is? Sure. The, when Earhart transmitted with her radio, with, with her transmitter, uh, it put out signals on one of two primary frequencies. They were high frequencies, 3105 kilocycles, as they were called at that time, and 6210 kilocycles. And those are the signals that people around the Pacific were listening for her on. Those are the signals, the frequencies that Pan Am was taking bearings on. But at the same time the transmitter was putting out signals on those frequencies, it was also putting out signals on harmonics of those frequencies. That is, higher multiples of those frequencies. And those harmonics, and they weren't intentional, it was just, it was just sloppy as the way radios were back then. And these harmonics, much higher frequencies, travel much greater distances with much greater clarity, but they're not predictable. They, they come down wherever they come down. So the people around North America who unexpectedly, accidentally start hearing Amelia Earhart's voice calling for help, 
they're just cruising in their chart wave dial looking for foreign stations and stumble upon a harmonic of, of Earhart's frequencies and are astonished to hear her calling for help. Oh, yeah. And the Betty Klink, uh, what, what she heard and what she wrote down in Florida is really quite dramatic. It's, it's basically, it's almost like after the crash. And, she's, and you actually have a copy of that notebook, I believe, don't you? You, you, you knew Betty Klink. It, that's right. Betty had a notebook that she kept by her radio. And when she started hearing this, she grabbed her notebook and started to transcribe what she could make out. And we interviewed her uh, extensively about each entry. And uh, eventually, Betty donated her, her notebook to our organization. And I, I have it here. It's, it's an extraordinary document. Right. And, but, of course, another way you've proven this as well, besides just the radio signals, as you said, 57, I think, credible signals, you also have made a series of trips to the island. Have you made something like 10 trips since 89? Is that right? I've, I've led 10 expeditions to the island since 1989, yes. And you found a number of, 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 of evidence. One of the probably the most dramatic is what you think is a piece of the Electra, which was uh, Earhart had a crash in Hawaii, and they did some modifications to the plane, and there was a, a piece put on. And I think, is it your contention that you found one of those pieces and you've had it tested, I think, at MIT, and it conforms with Could you explain that, please? We, we found, this was in 1991, fairly early on, we found a section of what is very clearly a piece of airplane skin, the aluminum sheet covering of an airplane. It doesn't fit anywhere on any known aircraft, including a standard Lockheed Electra. But we know, we have photographic proof, that when Earhart was in Miami at the start of her second world flight attempt, a window on the right-hand side of the airplane that had been specially installed uh, was replaced for some reason, we think it probably cracked, was replaced with a plain metal aluminum sheet a patch that was put over the hole. And the, we think the piece of metal we have is a patch. Sorry, yeah, sorry. So it wasn't in Hawaii. It was in uh, Miami then. So, And hasn't MIT looked at this and tested the metal, you, or you've had other work to really drill down on it to prove that's the case? Oh, uh, we, we, we've had Alcoa, who made the aluminum, look at it. And Alcoa says, yeah, it's the right kind of aluminum. The trouble is just about every airplane during World War II was made of that kind of aluminum. Uh, we did measurements and uh, found that the artifact does fit where the patch was. We measured uh, an existing Lockheed Electra and the, the, the structure, so it fits. Okay. Uh, what MIT did was review the methodology we used to verify all this, and MIT said, yeah, I... I think you've done everything right. I, I think you've got a piece of the airplane here. Okay. You also found some other items. Like, for example, didn't you find freckle ointment and a, a pair of women's shoes? And a skeleton was discovered prior to this, too? Well, let's talk about the skeleton first, because that is really solid. Okay. Uh, back in 1940, when uh, the British first were putting natives on the island to clear land, plant coconuts, build a village... A work party found a skull and buried it. A few months later, when a colonial administrator showed up, he heard about the skull and reasoned there have to be more bones if you found a skull. And he went and looked, and sure enough, way back in the bushes on a remote part of the island, he found what can only be described as a castaway's campsite, 
with a partial skeleton. The giant coconut crabs who live on the island had carried off many of the bones. But he found a partial skeleton, he dug up the skull, and he thought he found Amelia Earhart because there was a sextant box, a box that had once contained a nautical sextant, and, a, and he found part of a woman's shoe. And he said, well, woman's shoe, sextant, this might be Amelia Earhart. Okay. He notified his superiors who uh, eventually analyzed all this stuff and misidentified it, he decided it wasn't Earhart, and the whole thing was forgotten until we discovered the original file in 1998. Okay, and I should just add, I, I believe that, that that island was one of the last colonies actually colonized by the British, and it was abandoned in the 60s, I believe, and also there were U.S. troops there in World War II. Wasn't it a radar station, too, in World War II? It was a Loran navigation station. The, the Coast Guard had uh, about 25 men at a, a navigation station there from 1944 until 1946. The colony was abandoned in 1963 after a severe drought. Nobody has lived on the island since then. Okay. So um, that those skeletal remains were, were then shown to be a woman after, after you said they were misidentified, So and they were of the same height. Uh, she was, what, 5'7", something like that? She was 5'7", and the bone measurements, the, the bones have been lost. But the bone measurements that were taken by a British doctor have been evaluated by a world-class forensic anthropologist, Dr. Richard Jantz, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and compared to Earhart's uh, bone lengths, which we determined through forensic imaging of historical photographs, and the conclusion is there's a 99.28% chance that that castaway was Amelia Earhart. Okay, I just want to get to, um, have I left anything out uh, else out as far as items that you found? Mr. Gillespie, that, that, that reaffirmed this. I want to get on to a photo that you discovered fairly recently, which may have been the landing gear um, sticking out uh, of the water when the British took a photo uh, b- by that where you think she crashed, right? With Electra landing gear may have been sighted. That, that's right. Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating piece of, of evidence. This is a photograph that was taken by a British expedition that visited the island only three months after Earhart disappeared. They weren't looking for Earhart. They were checking the place out for future settlement, and they took a bunch of pictures. And one of those pictures shows the western coastline of the island and the big old shipwreck that had been there since 1929. But what nobody noticed in the photo, until, and we didn't even notice until 2010, is that there is something sticking up out of the water on the reef that shouldn't be there on an uninhabited island. And forensic imaging of that object. We went to Oxford University in England to get the best possible copy of this thing, and it was verified by uh, U.S. government photo analysts at the State Department. Uh, This thing appears to be the wreckage of landing gear of a Lockheed Electra. Okay, so um, so basically, yeah, you got the that picture. You have the items that you found. Um, your theory is that she basically she landed safely on that reef. That they were how many days did, you, did they broadcast for? In your opinion, four days. Uh, at least five. Five, and then and then, then unfortunately they had a very sad end where they ran out of water and were basically eaten by crabs. Right. Well, uh, it's not clear what uh, how long Fred lasted. My personal opinion, I don't I don't think Fred lasted long at all. There are reasons. In the radio distress calls, he was frequently described as being severely injured. But it was Earhart's skeleton that was found 
on the other side of the island at a campsite and based on the remains of food that were at that site in a campfire, burned turtle, fish, bird bones, that sort of thing, she survived certainly for a matter of weeks, probably a matter of months, probably not a year. But she survived by herself as a castaway on that island um, for quite a period of time. Now, Mr. Cousin, one of the things that you've obviously done is you've, you've had to debunk some of the other theories. One of the theories that she was flown and she was captured by the Japanese, that she was deliberately overflying Japanese fortifications for basically on a spy mission for Roosevelt. But you, one of the things I heard you say is that you don't think she had enough fuel for that. And when that photo came out showing her, that was supposedly her in capture, you were one of the people to say that wasn't her, correct? That was an incorrect photo. Well, yeah. Uh, th- th- that photo that was featured in a History Channel documentary is probably the most extreme case of confirmation bias I've ever, I've ever heard of. This is a photo that was in a U.S. intelligence file at the National Archives of U.S. Navy intelligence gathered prior to the invasion of the Marshall Islands in 1944. It's a picture of Jalowit Harbor, and that's what the caption on the photo says it is. It's just a picture of a bunch of people standing on a dock, and you can see the harbor in the background. A perfectly logical thing for the Navy to be getting prior to the invasion of the Marshals. A, a, a devotee of the Japanese capture theory was looking through those photographs. He sees somebody on that dock that he thinks looks like Amelia Earhart, and he suddenly jumps to the conclusion that this photograph has been misfiled, it's a secret intelligence photo, shouldn't be here, and here is the long hidden proof that she was that the US government knew she was captured by the Japanese. And it was just ridiculous. We we reasoned at the time that we first saw the photo that the Navy probably found that photo in a travel book someplace, but we didn't think there was any chance we could find the book. But two days after the History Channel show was aired, a Japanese historian blogger did find the photo in a Japanese travel book that was published in 1935, two years before Earhart disappeared. Wow, so that, that's pretty much been debunked then. Oh, yeah. I'd say that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so so basically um, you have, uh, you're organizing another exhibition, I believe, where you want to take submarines, I believe, from Hawaii and really explore that reef area and searching for the plane. You did one exhibition, but I believe the underwater machine you had wasn't working correctly and you really weren't able to you had a, an anomaly as you called it uh that that you pinpointed with sonar right and you really haven't been able to explore that and you think the plane is by the reef is that right we are quite sure that the airplane went off the edge of the reef and into the ocean in that location what happened then is the big question everything we've found so far and we've done we, we've tried remote operated vehicles side-scan sonar on autonomous underwater vehicles, uh, and there doesn't seem to be anything big there. So it, it appears that the airplane was torn apart by the surf on that reef edge, and all that's left are scattered pieces that may have then been covered in underwater landslides. There's not much left to find, if anything. The only way to be absolutely sure is to get out there with manned submersibles where you can really put brains and eyeballs down there and survey the reef. The problem is there's about a $2 million price tag to do that. If anybody wants to step forward and sponsor that, I'd be happy to talk to them. Have you you raised any money for that new exhibition? I mean, are you planning to do that next summer? Is there any guideline on when you 
might get this started at the submarine search? No, no they, there's 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 no guideline. Uh, the, where we are on that is if if a sponsor would step forward and sponsor it, we'd be happy to do it. But we don't think that it's even necessary. Uh, we have more than enough evidence right now to establish, and, and there's no conflicting evidence, that this is what happened to Amelia Earhart. There, there is this popular feeling that the, the mystery will never be solved until the airplane is found. Uh, but where is it written that that has to be the case? If, if the airplane no longer exists, that doesn't change the fact that Earhart, that, that there's tons of evidence that Earhart landed and died there. One of the things, Mr. Gillespie, too, you said that I don't believe the Electra could, if it was floating, it couldn't run the engines, and that would make basically, first of all, if she had floated on the ocean, would she have been able to broadcast, and would, would, the, would the airplane have even have floated on the ocean at all for her to broadcast? The airplane probably would float because it had large fuel tanks that would take a while to fill. The airplane would probably float for some period of time. But at the time, the airplane manufacturer, Lockheed, cautioned everybody, this is back in 1937, that if the airplane is floating in the water, the radio components are going to be submerged. Okay. It won't work. It's impossible for it to transmit if it's in the water. <coughs> so therefore, the fact that she broadcast and transmitted, she had to have been on land to broadcast. And, and not only that, that because the... Uh, transmissions went on night after night after night, she had to be able to run the engine with the generator on it, the right-hand engine, to recharge the battery that the radio depended on. So in order to run the engine, the airplane has to be on its wheels. There was no crash. The airplane made a safe landing. What do you say to people, Mr. Gillespie, that say that that, that island was searched by a, a U.S. aircraft carrier, had a plane fly over it not too long after this, and they didn't see evidence. Do you just think they just, they just overflew her and just missed it, or what's your theory on that? Well, it wasn't an aircraft carrier. There, there was a battleship that was sent from Hawaii uh, to search the island and other islands in the area with three catapult-launched float planes that were aboard the battleship. Okay. And they sent the ship there because of the radio signals. But when the planes overflew the island on the morning of July 9th, by then, the airplane had been washed into the ocean and was no longer visible. The radio signals had stopped. But what the pilots did notice were clear signs of recent habitation on the island. They, the senior aviator said that... Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, the, um, Maybe it's a donor... <laughs> right for your submarine trip. Yeah, uh, there were. Um, uh, where were we? Yeah, we were talking uh, about the overflight of the island by those planes from the battleship. By the island, they see markers of some kind on the beach, and they say it's signs of uh, recent habitation. But they didn't see any people. What they didn't know is there had been no recent habitation of the island. Nobody had been there since night uh, since uh, 1892. There should have been no sign of any such thing there. But they didn't know that. They, they didn't see an airplane. They didn't see a person. So they crossed the place off as having been searched, and the rest of the search took place in open ocean, and they didn't find anything. 
Mr. Clay, why do some people dismiss? I mean, what is the basis that anyone would have to dismiss these radio signals? What do what do people say that dismiss this theory? How do they explain these radio signals? What, what can anyone possibly say to dismiss them? Well, they don't. <laughs> they, they, well, the, to, to the extent that anybody tries to explain them. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, to the extent that anybody tries to explain them, they just go back to what the Navy said in 1937 when the search was over and they hadn't found anything. They said, well, for these signals to have been genuine, there had to be an airplane on land. We looked on land. We didn't see an airplane on land. Therefore, all the signals have to have been bogus. The Navy never did a thorough investigation. Okay. Um, uh, they they just you know they they had called off the search. Uh, they you, you look at them from a political standpoint. They've they've gone home now, you know, and they can't very well say, well, you know, maybe she was out there, but uh, maybe we just left her to die on some island. No, they 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 just said no no. All those signals must have been bogus. And okay, well, anybody that now tries to refute it, goes back to that reference, and, of course, it's not a legitimate... Just a, just, just a few more questions, Mr. Gillespie. Some people say that Earhart was not that great a pilot because of that crash in Hawaii and obviously because of this misidentification of the island. What's your theory on her as a pilot? Was she a, was she a great pilot, or was it a lot of it just hype? But what's your opinion on that? Oh, well, Amelia herself said that... Uh, her record-setting flights added nothing to uh, to aviation. Uh, what what her flights were, were were stunt flights. They were designed to uh, attract publicity, to set records, and to support her uh, way of making a living, which was doing speaking engagements. That's that's how she raised money. Got three hundred dollars, a lot of money in nineteen nineteen thirties, to talk to uh, women's groups, the civic groups. So uh, she she did these flights, but she wasn't a pioneer in the sense of pioneering new technology. Uh, she just did things that hadn't been done before, and some of it was very brave, very very bold. And she was very lucky. Um, she wrecked a lot of airplanes. She had eleven crashes. But managed to not get hurt and help him. Uh, good pilot? Well, you know, there's an old saying in aviation that there are old pilots and bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. <laughs> okay. Certainly a bold pilot. I heard you. She, yes. You never got to be old. I heard you mention that uh, this area is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's also important for global warming and kind of where these storms form. Did you have a play a hand in getting this designation as a UNESCO Heritage Site? Uh, not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we started going out there, and the people uh, we chartered a boat from uh, also had done charters for the New England Aquarium. And... They looked at the, this pristine reef environment and said, holy mackerel, we've never seen anything like this. And they passed that word on to the New England Aquarium people, who then chartered the boat to take them out to the island to look at it. 
and the, the New England Aquarium people are the ones who got in touch with the Republic of Kiribati, who owns the island, and said, look, this needs to be a protected area. And eventually it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, uh, yeah, it all came from our Earhart investigation. We didn't do it. Do you see rising waters in the, in the 25 years you've been going to that island? Have you seen the waters been rising at all in, in your time going there? Not so much rising water, but certainly increased storm damage. Uh, we, we, we've seen a steady progression of, uh, in, in the severity of storms that hit the island and, and the damage that's done. When, when we went there in 1989, there was a, a, a building, a wood frame building, that had been there since 1963 and was virtually intact. Uh, we went back two years later, and it's it, it was flattened, and by now now it's it's completely gone. I mean, it's we, we've just seen a, a great increase, especially on the western northwestern end of the island that, that gets most of the weather. Uh, a, a huge increase in um, in storm damage. Let me ask you about just a final investigation. The Glenn Miller flight, the famous band leader who died in World War II, who we think um, is now his planes off the coast of England. How, where does that invas- investigation stand, and what work have you done on that recently? Just published uh, the most recent issue of our journal, Tiger Tracks, that contains the investigative report of phase one of the Miller investigation, where... We've looked into the circumstances of the flight. We know what happened to him. We know what went wrong. We know what didn't happen. You know, there's a, there's a myth that, that the Hare's airplane was knocked down by friendly fire, by bombs that were jettisoned. Right. Yeah, th- that turns out to, to not have happened. Uh, it's a fascinating case. It was a totally unnecessary accident, but it was a classic aviation accident. I... I investigated similar accidents myself when I was in the business. You, you had a case where you had a couple of executives, one lieutenant colonel and Major Miller, who were very eager to get from England to France and were willing to uh, bend the rules and violate orders to, do their, to get there. And they had a pilot, a young inexperienced pilot who was eager to prove his worth, who was willing to take chances that he shouldn't have taken, and their their flight was unauthorized and unknown. Nobody knew they were doing it, and the weather was horrible, and we may never know exactly what went wrong, but it was probably ice, low weather, uh, freezing rain, ice. They went into the channel. The big question is can we find the wreck? And the only chance we have of finding that wreck is if it's the wreck that a fisherman with a trawler briefly recovered back in 1987. This guy's net hung up on something. He pulled it up to the surface, and it hung in his nets for a couple of hours. It was was an airplane. He later sketched a sketch of it, and it looks like the same kind of airplane Miller disappeared in. So we need to... Find out if that wreck he pulled up is still there, and if it's the Miller airplane. That's what we're working toward. Okay. Well, Mr. Gillespie, I'm, I'm out of time, but thank you so much for your time. The website is, it's pronounced uh, Tiger, uh, your organization? Okay. 
but it's T-I-G-H-A-R.org. If people want to learn more information, obviously donate. You have no plans as of yet for another expedition to the island, right, as of now? Not at this time, no. Okay. T-I- so thank you, Mr. Gillespie, um, for your time. Website, all our website is intelligenttalks.com. We've been speaking with Rick Gillespie here. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks a lot, Ralph. Bye-bye. Take care. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call Galitos at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100. For information on reservations, or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine. The Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212 206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440.